All right, excellent. Welcome. Good evening. I'd like, I'm delighted to welcome you all to this event on improving basic services for the bottom 40% lessons from Ethiopia. I'm Jean-Paul Feguer. I'm a professor in the political economy of development in the Department of International Deve- Development and not for International Development, which I'll explain in a moment. So welcome to all of you. We're very excited to see lots of new enthusiastic faces of new students who have just arrived at the beginning of the academic year here at the LSE. And welcome to all of you who are back um, as PhD students or undergraduates as well. I'm very pleased to announce to you our panel tonight. Um, let me start with Marta Foresti, who's Director of Politics and Governance at ODI. Um, she has a disciplinary background in philosophy and logic, and she'll be acting as a panelist and discussant of the report, as will Peter Hawkins, who's Head of Profession for Program Management at the Department for International Development, i.e. the, the bilateral aid agency of the UK government. Um, He is fluent in Amharic and spent a long time in Ethiopia and has a career spanning 30 years plus in international development. But our main speaker tonight, who will be presenting the report, is Kaiser Khan, who's lead economist and program leader at the World Bank and one of the senior figures in the office in Addis Ababa currently, although his work spans all of the world's developing regions. He's been in Latin America and the Caribbean. He's worked... Um, in Africa, of course, he's worked in Asia. He has a long career that actually began in the private sector, but then actually, no, that's not true. It began in academia. He was a professor of economics and then went into the private sector, but has, has spent a long time now working in development, which I think it's fair to say is where his heart lies. The ground rules are that Kaiser will speak for about 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll have discussions, and then we'll open the, the floor to questions. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our speakers. He always tests out if the pointer is working. Is it working? Yeah. Anyway. Let's hope it's working anyway. And then, so I'm, I'm glad to be here tonight and uh, on a rainy night in London, which is a common night in London, I guess. But let's move on. I'm coming from a place which has very been rainy for three months in Addis Ababa right now, so seems very similar weather this morning. Okay. So let's move on. I mean, the title, why do I say the bottom 40%? The t- it's in the title. The story is part, partly in the title. The bottom 40%, actually bottom 10 even more so, are the people who seem to get left behind as countries develop, right? So we're trying to learn some lessons that we, are get, that we can glean from some countries, and Ethiopia is one of them we're looking at, what kind of service delivery models can bring the bottom 40% and help them move ahead with, uh, you know, uh, because at the end of the day, development is about giving people choices. But to have choices, you need to have your own human capital, education, health, all of that, right? So how do you make sure that the poor or the bottom half of the population get the same, at least, access to service to the start at some starting point with other people. We don't know about the results. At least you need to have equity. Equity of opportunities is what we look for rather than equity of outcomes, right? So that's the first point. So let's go for, uh, you know, so basically the whole objective study, one word, we're trying to figure out the Ethiopian model, which is a decentralized service delivery model is reaching the poor, it's reaching the 
underserved uh, small ethnic groups is reaching women and all the people who normally get less grant. So that's the purpose of the study, and we were able to generate a data set to look at it along with John Paul, who is here, right? And few or two other people who are not here, who are right now traveling in uh, Ethiopian region of Harar. Just to so here's the regional map of Ethiopia. Ethiopia became a federal state. And a federal state has, uh, you know, you see some regions, it's really small. Harar, I just mentioned, is a little speck in there, right? But uh, the federal state, these, these regions are fully autonomous, and they have their regional governments, right? And below the regions, you also have waradas, which are, will be districts in other countries, right? And these waradas are are responsible for basic services in education, health, agricultural extension, uh, basic uh, water supply, and maintenance of and provision of rural roads. So, those are the five sectors that are fully decentralized at district level, which is unusual for many countries because decentralization to that level is not a common thing. The other thing with the Ethiopian constitution, I should point out that Ethiopia is a multinational, multi-ethnic state. There are some very small ethnic groups as well. And one of the things the Constitution allows is for even a small ethnic group could demand to have their own ward or district and then get control of the services at that level. So that's the federal system in Ethiopia. Okay, the total population is 92 million, which makes it the second largest population in Africa after Nigeria, which is the biggest. 98 ethnic groups, 93 languages. It has had very far, it's the fastest growing country in Africa in the last 10 years and the third fastest in the world. So growing at 10% per year. It is, has also made some of the most striking reductions in poverty, but poverty still remains very high. So I mean, when you say it's made reductions in poverty, it doesn't mean the story is over, you can go start. And it has made rapid strides towards reaching the MDG targets. Now, the MDG targets are targets, and they achieve that, but Ethiopia will probably need to go beyond those targets. So just to give an example, net child mortality fell to 120, uh, from 123 to 88 per thousand. Uh, primary net enrollment rate rose from 68 to 82 percent. You see some numbers of gross enrollment over five, over 100 percent, but that includes students who were over age. So. Okay, so as I said, the, it's a federal state, nine regions, two cities, full administrative decentralization, about 850,000 workers official in the country, but about 100 plus of them are in the greater Addis Ababa capital region. So so there's, those have a different way of delivering services. So we looked at the 850 waradas. There's a program in Ethiopia that the Ethiopian government has been good at pooling partners into country-based systems and making them work through country-based systems. And one of those programs is the Promotion of Basic Services program. I have two colleagues, one on the panel, one sitting in the audience who helped develop the program earlier on. But this is the largest donor-supported program in the world. It is implemented by local governments. At the current phase, is about $6.3 billion over five years. And about half the funds come from the government of Ethiopia, half come from development partners. Uh, 
of which the largest are in that order, uh, World Bank, DFID, and the U European Union in, in, in terms of large contributions, right? And these things, uh, these, these, this program finances intergovernmental fiscal transfers. These are transfers going to the local governments. So it goes from federal to regional, regional to local. And federal government has a formula under which they have to distribute funds to local, which takes account population and poverty and lack of development in the process. And regions have their own formula. Each region develops its own formula. And the funds go to the districts. Okay. So we, the World Bank, about 10 years ago, this is the 10th anniversary of that report, issued a World Development Report, which does every year. But this, the focus was how to improve services for the poorest. And that World Development Report postulated a model where you have to have accountability. So there are, for the poor people, and so there has to be several routes of accountability. The poor people, if you see on the left blue axis there, and, and the service providers are on the right, on the right, uh, sorry. Oh yeah, you're facing, yeah, left and right. I'm just trying to get it right. Okay, so you have to have accountable systems, right? So yes, you can have accountability from poor people through their impact, through votes on policymakers, and through policymakers and government requirements on service providers, which happens in countries like the UK, I mean in most countries, strong government. You can also have, in addition to that, some mechanisms under which the poor people can actually directly influence the service providers. And when all both sides work, you get better results and more accountability to the poor. So that's the conceptual model, and the Ethiopian model is basically tries to develop that. So sort of, I would say, the backed into it. So what are the models of? We know how governments work. Governments are strong, weak, whatever. So what are the models that allow citizen accountability for service service provider citizen accountability? One of the parts in things in Ethiopia is the financial transparency and accountability things. What we have, the government, all district governments, or what are the governments, have to publish their budgets. And they have to publish, you know, the money they get, what they're spending it on, where they're doing it. And these have to be in the local language, right? So these are published in many cases on the web, but they're usually outside most government offices, right? And then citizens are provided training in how to react and deal with the budgeting process, right? So in addition to the local governments, service delivery, so in Ethiopia, 90% of local governments posted their budgets in public. In some regions, the citizens engage in active discussion. Now the government is thinking of moving to making all regions have active citizen discussions before they finalize the budgets, they get the allocation, right? And then 50% of service delivery units post their budget. Now, 50, service delivery units are schools, health centers, just to take some examples. Why this is important? About 10, 15 years ago, the World Bank did a study of um, you know, ex public expense tracking in Uganda, found out less than 5% of what is supposed to be ending up at the school was ending up at the school, right? So by having the budgets out there, having the, you know, people know what the school is getting, people know the staff they're getting, so there's some, you know, mechanism of at least getting citizen knowledge on the budget process. Right. So 
local government officials being trained and as well as citizens are being trained and this is done in training sessions as well as radio television. The second part of citizen accountability is what we call social accountability. Now, we know that Ethiopia went from a feudal society to a very strong Marxist regime to a very strong regime. Now, history of people who feel they're not in that, you know, who people may be afraid to express their views as directly. So what social accountability does is provide a, a structured way in which people can speak out without being feeling they may be take they they they, they would be intimidated. They, uh, so what happens is social accountability we have groups who are facilitators, mostly non-government organizations, civil society organizations. They will sit with service users separately, then with service providers separately, understand the problem separately, and then put them together in a situation where they work, help each other work out the solutions, how to improve it. So these, these tools in most countries have had the effect of improving results. Uh, the impact evaluation of that done in neighboring Uganda has shown at least a 25% reduction in cost or results in or improvement results, whichever way you look at it, right? That has the thing. So, and at the end of the process of social accountability, the service users and the service providers agree on a joint service improvement plan. Okay. So, I'm not going to go over the data, how we generated data, but all I want to say is that, yes, we used administrative data, we have used survey data, we have used very independent surveys like DHS to cross-check the administrative data to make sure that we are, you know, in the, going in the same direction. And um, so we have been able to class data for, we did seven, I said the 850 words or even 1,000 right now, 727 Waradas is what we have in the sample, which covers the whole country. It covers the end because we did 727 because we needed some data which could only be done at the time of the census. And the last census, they had that many Waradas, so we used that data to get that. For example, ethnic characteristic of a district. Okay. So for those of you who are not economists, I'm not going to go over this. It's there in the book, and there are several more things in the annexes. But this is a form of equation that Jean-Paul and many others who have been working on decentralized service delivery have been trying to use to estimate, uh, est estimate uh, the impact of, you know, of spending and other things on services. Uh, you see that, for those of you who know math, you see the natural log sign in front of it. What we do in econometrics, use natural log to take out extreme values and the impact of extreme values so it makes it within a range. So extreme values and outliers get thrown out in the process. I'll leave it at that. Anybody more interested, we can chat later. Okay. <laughs> now, we said that the Waradas are given money to spend on different sectors, these five sectors. What do they spend the money on? If you look at that pie chart, 62% of the money is spent on education, 17% on health, which is primarily health extension workers and local health facility staff. It's all salaries. 
agricultural extension workers, are, they spend 18% of these are called development agents. Their job is to help farmers improve their productivity. And one person on road maintenance and two person on maintaining water systems. The reason roads and water are low, there's another reason. Water is mostly put together by the community. This is paying for the non-community share, right? And roads, the capital construction budget comes from the regional government, not from the local government. Okay. Now, the results. That equation was estimated, and we can go into that. Now, what do they tell us? You know, we, expenditure per capita, which is one, so for example, $1 increase in spending per capita on education at the, at the Warada level will increase net enrollment rate by 3.6%. That is a very good impact. $1, 20 Ethiopian beer. I mean, it's a pretty good impact given what he can do. We can also see that some would say somatological reduces teacher-student ratio. Now let's look at health. <laughs> Maternal child mortality improves with increasing spending in health in the district level, right? So a $1 increase in per capita health spending will increase Penta-3 vaccination, which is a, it's a group of vaccinations done for children, by 4.9%. Access to antenatal care, which is care parents taking their children, uh, well, pregnant mothers going to see health facilities before they have the child, by 6.4%, and access to skilled birth attendance, which is going to a skilled birth attendant at the time of birth, whether a facility or a health extension worker, up to 11.3%. Now, those of you who understand, who know how mortality and health works, the first two will, in, will reduce child mortality and the second two will reduce maternal mortality, which are pretty high still in Ethiopia. So these are very important ways to spend money. Okay. Now, agriculture, again, you know, per capita increases in expending on agriculture services. This is primarily not on inputs, not on it just advice provided to farmers. Right. So that see, has a significant effect on increasing output on most cereals and vegetables. There's no root effect on root crops, pulses, and oil seeds. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I, you know, I was doing this pulses, you know, you know so, so all these things I had to figure out what. So I, we can explain later. I'm not going to go through and explain what each group is, right? But one crop you see, NSAID, is a very Ethiopian crop. You not get that anywhere else. It's there, so it grows in a certain part of Ethiopia. Yes. Other crops, I'm sure you see everywhere else in the world. Okay. Now, the other question we're trying to ask, is the money and the spending, the impact of spending getting to the poor? And for that one, we did the analysis. We found out that spending at the national level, which we did, and I didn't do it, our other colleagues did it, right? Uh, of the bottom 40% receives only 33% of the impact of public spending in Education and 34% health, right? This is the whole country level, including the local districts, right? Now, we just look at the district level, the decentralized spending at the district level. 63% of the incidents fall on, of district spending on health falls on the bottom 40%, and 56% of that on the, of, of that on education. So, 
local district level spending is definitely more pro poor than national spending in Ethiopia. Right. <laughs> now, here we are, you know, one of the things we try to do when you do analytic work, you have a database, you test it, then you test it in independent sources, see if the results you're getting <laughs> are moving in the right direction. And the, those of you who know econometrics or know, there's a, the institution in the U.S. provides, does this demographic health service in almost every country in the world, every five years. And this data is very independently done, done on independent national global method. And looking at that method, you can see that improvements in health <coughs> outcomes have been across all quintiles. So they have the data across well, the five wealth quintiles. It's been improved across all quintiles. Again, we'd be arguing that this is because of the way Ethiopian spending for basic services is structured to get to the poor. Okay. And uh, let's look at what is the impact of agriculture spending on by wealth quintile. Now, from a purely econometric statistical point of view, the, wealth, the land holding quintile here uh, is slightly richer than the wealth quintile because the poorest people, you know, if you don't have land, you're not in, in this group, right? But you find out that the spending on agriculture extension workers has an effect on all landholding quintiles to take improved technology, whether it's improved seed, improved fertilizer, improved you know, approaches to irrigation, right? So there's a positive effect. However, the effect is more pronounced in slightly higher up the distribution than lower down. And you could postulate a lot of reasons for it. Part of the reason could very much be the cost of inputs are more of a constraint for the poorer people than for the... So the wealthier farmers, you tell them you need to do this, they agree and they do it. Poor farmers then still have to find the money to buy the inputs. So that's something to think about as a question. And we looked at gender equity again. And gender equity, as you found out, again, the net enrollment rate did not look at health because all the four health outcomes were all targeted to women. You know, so the health we did not look at. It's almost tautological to look at the health one. But for example, if you looked at the impact of, uh, you know, on male enrollment compared that to female enrollment, the impact is slightly higher, right? And so, so there is a slightly more pronounced effect on increasing female enrollments. And then looking at the probability of field using improved farming technique by gender, and here the impact is not that great. In fact, it's negative for women farmers and positive for male farmers, right? So we, yeah, we, have, we are now trying to find out what causes this. Uh, it could be that the, most of the agents are male and they do not talk to women farmers that easily. It could be the agents are focusing on certain crops and then they do not, you know, and they do not focus on crops that women tend to grow, which would be more food crops, generally in most countries. Or it could also be that uh, the women farmers may have plots which are not as good. So any of that. But this is the impact on results. I'm not saying there's deliberate bias, but it could be the way the services delivered has to be looked at. Okay. So the conclusions are, you know, very much localized spending uh, has a good effect on health and, and, and education. 
with the effect less clear for agriculture, but it's still positive. And it's pro-poor, benefiting the bottom 40% much more than regional or federal spending. The equity effect is stronger for health and education, less for agriculture. Gender equity is good for health and education, not agriculture. Uh, okay, this targeting of lagging region works except for... Okay, let me... We, we push that slide into the back. Let me go to that slide. We didn't... Uh, I didn't put it out. We have lots of slides we did not put out, but this is one slide. This one here. Okay. This is a spatial variation of expenditures. This is important because part of the federal system was to set out to provide more, uh, you know, a, a pushed effort, a stronger effort for the more lagging regions and the more lagging ethnicities. And this result, as you, uh, as you see, it bears out that finding. The more lagging regions are getting more. There's one exception, Somali, but we found out the reason it's, it's lower is because Somali is spending, we are using water-level expenditures in this. Somali is spending much of its money at the, at the region level. So that's one thing. They're paying salaries at the region level rather than at the world level. So that's one thing that has to be looked at in the future. So, so I go back to the thank you slide. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Great. Thank you very much, Kaiser. And a couple of quick housekeeping points I should have made at the start before handing over to Marta. Um, first of all, there'll be free copies of the book, courtesy of the World Bank, available on the table just outside the doors as you walk out either door at the end of the event. Um, so you can just go and, and pick up your own. Um, secondly, we, this event was advertised with one additional speaker, Andy Norton, from also from ODI, who sends his regrets. He has a sick child at home and so couldn't be with us tonight. Um, and so that's why we only have four people at the table. So, Marta. Um, thank you, Jean-Paul, and thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, okay, I am going to comment on three different and quite separate issues. I'm going to say something broad about some, some overall comments about the book uh, and some of the comments that Kaiser made. And I then want to touch briefly on two specific issues that are um, mentioned in the book and, and also in, in Kaiser's presentation, one of them at least, on social accountability and, and some of the findings, the different findings in relation to health and education and agriculture. <coughs> So overall, um, my sort of general comments about the book is that it is extremely useful to have empirical studies of this kind where you can have reliable, good quality data over a decent period of time um, in a country like Ethiopia that you could triangulate with EHS and having you know, the PBS with all his history and, and all his, you know, and then the size as it is means that there is a wealth of information that typically is programmatic that can actually be put to use to answer difficult empirical questions about do we know if there is a link between spent and outcomes at the local level. So I think that's an, an, a really important contribution and, um, and, and it would be good to have more of this kind of attempts. Um, the, the other reflection, is something which is a bit closer to my heart and to my work, is this is yet another example of how influential and important the WDR 2004 on making services work for the poor has been, because we are here in this room today talking about 
you know, data that demonstrates causal relation between spent and outcomes, and at the same time tackling issues around do we know anything about um, how information to citizens is making a difference, um, and how influential the analytical framework that the WDR proposed, the, the famous triangle, has been to actually be put to use for very empirical study like this one. Um, so moving on to some of the specific comments, I mean, inevitably I want to comment on social accountability, don't I? Um, and um, I just had a quick chat with Kaiser before the event, and there is work and, and empirical work underway um, developing a baseline, again, sort of making the most of the size of PBS to try to get to the bottom of how the, the social accountability component has worked. Um, and, and, again, and this is you know, the, the part of the book that deals with social accountability is the greatest and most tangible um, example of the, sort of the WDR influence and implication. Um, what this book says about social accountability, I think, is a very good, um, um, how do you say, it's a very good proxy for, I think, where we are with this broader debate about the importance of social accountability and governance factors in determining development outcomes which is basically that we all recognize that it matters, but there is still a lot that we don't know about when it works and how. Which, let's be careful, it doesn't take anything away from the notion that citizens ought to have a say in how budget is spent or ought to have the information they need to be able to make choices. But it's a fundamentally different question than proving and linking you know, the, the, the fact that there is investment in these areas and improved outcomes. Now, there are very technical reasons why that's a difficult link to prove, and I actually don't think that necessarily, you know, that's the only way to investigate is to do more experimental study to get to the bottom. Some are being done, and what they're revealing is a pretty mixed picture, right? The, some of the work that Bijarao has done at the bank, for example, will be an example of that when you do, you know, quite extensive studies that show that having citizens better aware of their rights makes a difference sometimes, but not always. And typically that when sort of the demand side of the social accountability dimension is not linked up with the so-called supply, when there isn't, and, you know, when there isn't what Bijarao calls a sandwich between the citizens and the state, those effort to try to get citizens um, better informed and better aware of their right and better able to hold to account is, is, remains largely not as effective as one would want it to see. So I think we all need to recognise that there are these these questions on the table that, you know, there's, there, there are often very polarized debates about people who care about these things and people who think that they cannot be proven and therefore clearly don't matter. The, the reality is that we need to find that middle ground and we can have more informed conversation about it. And I do think that PBS offers a quite unique opportunity because not, all, not only is a wealth of data, but it's also a wealth of experience of years in, in a country as politically complicated as Ethiopia or try to get to the bottom of the nature of the relationship between the citizen and the state. So I do wonder whether more could be done to mine that experience of people that over the years, including Peter on my left, have been involved in the process, um, to question it and to try to better understand it. I mean, within that broad picture, I think that this study goes, and, and this is a, a specific contribution that it makes, and, and, and I think the study... So it tells us something about it, but leaves me wanting to know more. There is a very specific proposition here, which is that it is the decentralization of some of these processes, including the decentralization of the work that is aimed particularly around budget, budget transparency, that is potentially making a difference. Now, that's worth, I think, investigating more, because there are a number of assumptions in some of the thinking around 
um, making citizens sort of citizens' voice an effective way to get to outcomes. And one of them typically is that you know decentralisation will make that longer route of accountability between the citizen and the state somewhat shorter by bringing the state closer to the citizen. Now, I'm, I'm persuaded that this is potentially true. Um, I think if there is, if it is worth questioning that more in Ethiopia, because of course Ethiopia is a case where there is a fairly strong central government and if there, you know, if there was you know, evidence, even if not across all the Moravias, but where the decentralisation really has made a difference in the way citizens are being able to influence um, local, local level outcomes, I think that would be a particularly um, useful um, set of findings to investigate further. And I would say that the fact that so much of the, or an important element of the PBS was specifically looking at budget transparency and budget, you know, you know around social accountability around budgetary processes makes sort of the field of investigation a bit more, you know, a bit smaller because typically, you know, the social accountability spectrum can be as, as wide as you want, whereas you can actually focus on perhaps more in-depth studies in some of the moraders around some of the specific uh, tools for social accountability to try to um, get, get to the bottom of the extent to which decentralization has made a difference. Um, the other thought I had um, reading this is to do with the slightly different results that uh, are found in health and education as opposed to agriculture. Um, again, you know, the, the reasons, you know, there are some, there are some hypotheses in the book. The, the reason why this um, caught my attention is because at ODI, in sort of those of, you know, in, 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 in our work on governance, we've been for the last few years trying really hard to get a better handle of how governance um, affects development outcomes in different sectors. And one of the areas that we've investigated is whether there is anything that is inherent in sector characteristics that is likely to have a different you know, in, in, like the different implications in relation to the institutional governance factor that shapes service delivery outcomes. And one of the hypotheses we've got that there are, you know, there are differences in health and education, in, in health and education, and even within sectors, if the if the if a program is investing in uh, in I don't know in public health, is fundamentally a diff- has very different features than distribution of medicine. So we're really trying to get a handle of how these different sectors, how the technical characteristics of sectors have implications for for political and governance drivers, and I do wonder whether, you know, in, there is something about this, you know, the way we define services in agriculture that is fundamentally different than health and education, including in relation to the final beneficiaries, which are not citizens at large, but consumers or services of different kinds, that will be worth, um, they'll be worth um, thinking about further. Lastly, a question to you in relation to the, P- P- the PBS architecture. And this is, I think, is an open question and one that we're getting closer and closer to becoming braver about suggesting is that if we're serious about putting the, you know, the, the social accountability and the governance thinking to better understand if it, how and when it, it improves outcomes, one way to do it is to look at programming to have a, an integrated approach to this. I mean, it's interesting, PBS continues to have a strand, if I understand it correctly, that is the social accountability that I mentioned that is running parallel. At some point, the question is not just one about empirical data. It's also one about ways of working and design. Is whether there are ways in which all this wealth of experience around, for example, budget transparency can be integrated in the, in a design, you know, within the design of a sectoral program to get a little bit closer to the nature of the relation between them. So my proposition is that one way to investigate that problem is exposed through 
research, but another one could be an, so experimenting with program design that builds some of that element into the sectoral program. And I, and I just put to Kaiser and to, and to others and Peter that have more of an experience around program management and the, the proposition, and this could be um, an innovative and experimental way to go. Excellent. Thank you very much. And now Peter Hawkins. <clears throat> thank you. Um, and thank you, Kaiser and Martha, for your words. Um, <clears throat> the disadvantage of coming third is that everyone else has said what you wanted to say. I suppose the advantage for me is, is that uh, Kaiser's gone through the economics, you've gone through all the social development stuff, so I can just tell the stories. I don't have to be academic in, in what I have to say. But I want to start off by, first of all, congratulating John Paul and Kaiser on that. <coughs> a brilliant piece of, of work when this was just a, a, um, an idea in our minds whenever it was two years ago I think three years ago I never believed that would actually get to, to this uh, level of detail and complexity so um, congratulations but secondly just to put it into a context I think this decentralised uh, service delivery has been going on maybe eight years, nine years with, with seriousness it is at the beginning and very beginning of a very a much, much larger project, a project that will probably take another 10, maybe even 20 years to, before it's fulfilled. As Kaiser said, Ethiopia is a population of 90, over 90 million. Um, the terrain is inhospitable, um, and the different, different ethnic groups, 98 ethnic groups, really brings a, a sort of challenge uh, to service delivery that very few other countries are probably um, faced with. So in many ways, um, it's a no-brainer to decentralise um, service delivery, bringing it down to the lowest common denominator, bringing it closer to the people who are actually managing the, the delivery rather than centralising it. If you think about UK, which has... Uh, two-thirds of the population and a much bigger infrastructure. It's only over the past 20 years that we've really started decentralising our, our system with National Health Trusts and so on. Um, and even then, we're not uh, succeeding very well. So the, the experiment in Ethiopia has, has been quite fantastic. Um, while recognising John Paul and, and Kaiser, I also want to recognise the really hard work that people on the ground in the Waradas um, and in the regions have, have done. And they're inspiration uh, for, for many of us, and I've known, uh, as John Paul said at the beginning, Ethiopia for a long time, how much, how hard these people are really trying to put this plan into action is it, quite phenomenal. And at um, a central level, how um, people in central government are really trying to stick to the principles of decentralised service delivery um, is, is trying to... Uh, trying to do, and because Bene is here, but people like Bene who spent years and years, much longer than me, actually uh, working really hard to make sure that this, this project in actual fact works. So there's a, there's a lot of people behind that. And I want to, slightly like you, bring up three issues, yeah, as I always do. Accountability and the results, um, and then a little bit about emerging regions where there, there is a black hole uh, in, a, in it. Accountability. When <clears throat> I won't say how long it was ago, but a number of years ago, if I told you it would not only give away which regime was in power, but also my age, and I'm sure you don't want to know how old I am, um, was sitting um, uh, observing a, a, a group of farmers in a, 
in a discussion um, in their association. Uh, I was with a senior Ethiopian politician, and we were talking about the, why Ethiopia is so fantastic, why Ethiopian people were so hardworking and perseverant. And in, in that conversation, he turned around to me and said, uh, Ethiopian people are really, really fantastic because they do exactly what you want them to do. When you talk about accountability, if that's not top-down accountability, then I'm not sure what is. And so the challenge around accountability in Ethiopia is, uh, is massive. Uh, but when you go there, as, as you said, Marta, you, you see the budgets posted on health centers in, in the world of places. You see a discussion taking place. You're beginning to see, uh, with land tax, that the accountability is coming through the sustainability of of resource mobilization at, at um, association level, warrior level. Um, and it's, the, the changes are palpable, I think. The, you, you, you can see um, where people are now beginning to demand the service, but not only what service that they require, but the type of service that they require. Committees, parent-teacher committees in schools are um, a force to be reckoned with in many parts of of the country. The results, um, and again I'll start um, w w with a story. I, a couple of years ago, took my children up to Lalibela and we sat by the marketplace. It was a Saturday afternoon, a market was, was working, and this farmer was wa walking in from the countryside <clears throat> with my children. I started talking about that farmer. That farmer looked the same um, to the farmer that 20, 30 years earlier that I sat in the same place during the Ethiopian famine and watched a farmer of a similar type coming in, slightly for different reasons. The market was of the same size and the same produce. The only difference was you got one section of the market which had expanded into Manchester United, Arsenal, and other Premiership football shirts. But if you ignored that, the rest was exactly the same. But in talking to, this children, to, to my children, because um, they were berating me that in the 20 years of development in Ethiopia I had done, achieved absolutely nothing if that farmer was the same. But in actual fact, when you looked and analysed um, the prospects for that farmer, um, that farmer today is 75% chance that he would own his own ox uh, to be able to farm. That farmer's wife would probably be alive, whereas 20 years ago um, he would be on his second or third or fourth wife. Um, the child, especially the under five child, is more likely to be alive than dead. Um, the children were, were at school, as it turned out. Um, and so the prospects of that farmer has changed immeasurably. Um, no longer is he working from day to day. Is the family surviving on a day-to-day -day basis? They are developing in a way um, that, that, that was unimaginable 20 20 years ago, and that is because the services now were available. Um, only in three years, the immunization rates have gone up from 85 to 88 percent. The 21 million children in school uh, in Ethiopia, that um, is a population of many entire countries. Um, 92,000 teachers have been trained and deployed. The absentee rate in teachers, while it's variable throughout the country, can be as little as um, 7%, which is quite phenomenal in, in, in parts of, uh, part of that country. So for the real lives of people, the, their prospects today are completely different to what they were 
20 years ago. But there's still a long, long way to go, and decentralization will only improve uh, the likelihood that those prospects will materialize into, into real gain and real reduction in poverty. But I suppose the area of greatest challenge, uh, I think, is around the emerging regions. It's emerging regions, Somali, Benishangul, Gumuz, Gambela, and the Afar region, make up probably about 10% of the population. Um, and yet in Somali region, for example, the enrollment rate is less than 50%, whereas in other regions it's up to 88-89%. Um, and it's, it's there, I think, where decentralization in itself is, is not... Um, well, what else needs to take place? Is it sufficient or is it not sufficient? How can you reinforce the management structures to ensure that the, the service delivery continues to meet accountability standards and uh, standards of, of quality of uh, um, services that would allow people to, to not only benefit from them but demand more from those services. Gambella in a pop- with a population of 300,000 there or thereabouts and it's the size of, I think, Wales or, or if not bigger, um, you know, you, you've got real challenges of how do you bring about uh, services uh, into those areas, but I think most, more particularly is the advantage of decentralization is you devolve the management uh, down to the lowest common denominator, and that management is, continues to be weak um, and, and will continue to be weak for a long time to come. Great, excellent, thank you very much. Um, do you don't have any reply. Should we just go straight, or do you? Should we just go straight to questions? Yeah, go straight. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. So let's take questions for any one of the panel. If your question is for one person in particular, please state um, state that. Otherwise, we'll assume that all the questions are answerable by everyone. Yes, over here in the white shirt. Yes, sir. We have. Oh, there's a roving mic. So there we go. Yes. Thank you, Chair. Um, I'm really astonished from what I'm hearing from the floor in terms of am I sitting in an academic institution or is this a political discussion? Um, By that, what I mean is Yes, there are big headways that have been made in Ethiopia in terms of growth. I wouldn't use the word development because in most human or otherwise indices, Ethiopia is still at the bottom of the world. My biggest question is the other side of the story that has never been told, which there is an opportunity to make this even better what is basic services without basic right? Okay. So that doesn't exist in Ethiopia. Don't take it from me. All independent organizations say that. That is the case. World Bank, I have never heard of them saying we have failed anywhere in the world that they have been to. For a country like Ethiopia, where the last over 10 years that... We have been pouring over $5 billion a year and start from a low base. It is not surprising that we are making a lot of improvements. But we could have made how much? 
the link between rights, accountability, governance, and change in terms of outcome. That link has been severed, and the World Bank wouldn't say anything about that. And I can tell you from my first-hand experience, if you're telling me there is that much accountability at a, a local or whatever, whatever level, this has never, why hasn't that never translated nationally? Okay, thank you for that. Listen, there's some other questions, so let's... Let's take, yeah, let's take a couple of other questions and then and we'll round them up. Yes, in the blue shirt back here, please. And then we can, we can take three at a time. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, I believe uh, earlier this year that the Transparency Inter International said that um, Ethiopia was the least corrupt nation in, in, uh, in, in the African states. Um, how does your model of decentralization uh, work within more corrupt nations, really, in terms of effectively driving political and economic uh, well, systems in, in order for distribution of uh, wealth e equally between sort of different, um, well, the lowest 40 percentile, really. How do you see it? How, how can you effectively manage that process? Right, okay, good, thank you. And the gentleman down here in the front, on the, on, on the aisle, yes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I was particularly tickled in the presentation when you made the point about the approach to decentralization in Ethiopia, where you said that even the small ethnic groups can actually demand for a district and they get it. In your opinion, do you think that is a positive thing? Do you think it increases the effectiveness of the decentralization process itself? Uh, because I saw there are ethnic tribes in Ethiopia which are as small as 1,000 people, even less than that. So can a district actually be granted for those groups? And does that therefore move people further apart rather than uh, promoting national unity and integration and so on and so forth? Then other two small points is on, on how sustainable is, uh, are all these gains that you have talked about. Uh, because I see it is 50% externally funded. Uh, is the World Bank and other European donors going to be there forever? Uh, or should we assume that they will get that one day? Is there something uh, from within uh, Ethiopia to show that they are able to take on this even if there is no uh, donor money and on participation? Uh, it's different to put information out there and whether actually people are making use of it. Um, you said about 270,000 people have, have been trained. That is less than 0.3% of the population of Ethiopia. So is there actually effective participation uh, of the people, or it's just a system that is somehow being put there to be there? Okay, thank you. Let's let Kaiser answer first, and then I'll let our other panelists. Okay, what I love about Ethiopians is their enthusiasm for the country and their love of the country. And thank you very much, and your points are well taken. I wanted to stick here to empirical results, triangulated by results, not just official data, but using independent survey data, and I'm sticking to that. I'm not getting into the rest of your question, and you can have a private discussion about that afterwards, right? For your question about whether 
keep keeping small groups having their own waradas, is that feasible? Well, it's it's a const- it, it's there, but very small groups don't ask for it, right? And in terms of the sustainability of 50% of the money coming from donors, it has been actually going down over time. It used to be over 75. It's going down to 50. And in, in the next phase, it'll probably go down to 30. So there is a change in dependence. Okay. Okay. Marta, do you have anything to add? Um, yes. Um, on, I think there are a, a couple of questions that touched on decentralization, different elements of it. One is, how do you do decentralization in a country that is more corrupt or where the central government is more corrupt? Well, the reality is that it doesn't, it, it doesn't work that well. I mean, I think Peter touched on that at the end of his comments. I actually don't think, and this is not specifically about Ethiopia, I don't think there is anything inherent in decentralizing um, management structures or, and political decision-making as well as spent that in and of itself resolves the drivers of corruption or of uh, political instability. And I do think that there is a problem, as it is often the case in international development, uh, thinking that we hang on to these solutions that are meant to be working everywhere. And I do think that there is a problem with the way in which decentralization is uh, is implemented, particularly in very fragile or sort of in, in, in unstable or weak, uh, where there are you know serious challenges around management of resources with the idea that if you don't decentralize them, the problem, the problem disappears. We've done quite a lot of work in Malawi that demonstrates very clearly that there is nothing that in, inherent in decentralizing that has made any difference um, uh, in relation to improving those structural conditions. So I would agree with you. I do think that, I mean, that the data from this, from this exercise demonstrate or seems to you know, suggest that there is something in, 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 in elements of the, particularly on decentralizing spend that has had effects, which one needs to take, you know, as, at face value in terms of that ha- having happened. But I think it would be a mistake to generalize about the success of the model. And this goes to, and I'm not an, at all an expert on Ethiopia, on your questions about linking rights to outcomes. Well, we can't, and in a way, this this, this study doesn't. Um, and I would agree with you that there are big challenges to human rights violations in Ethiopia. However, we do those of us who try to get a handle of what determines human rights outcomes in different places. I think there are examples in Ethiopia, and what the other obvious one in Africa is Rwanda, where there are, you know, for some of the reasons that maybe you outlined, because we started from a fairly low baseline, but where there have been clear examples of improving in, in, in human development outcomes where, you know, in the face of fairly authoritarian uh, regimes being in power centrally. I mean, I think that's not, you know, something that we need to be able to discuss. We, and, and in the same way that we should be very careful not to assume that because there have been improvement in outcomes, this has made any difference to the situation of, of, of freedoms and individual rights. So um, I think it's a question that is worth posing from an empirical point of view. Um, um, and um, and I think it's important, you know, it's important to take studies like this for, for what they offer into some deeper analysis of what happens in, you know, with specifically linking spent to development outcomes. Um, and I think I'll leave the question about levels of aid and donor to Peter. <laughs> um, <coughs> just taking up Mark's last point and, and, and your point. I mean, we are discussing decentralised service delivery here, and uh, I mean. 
you're, you're right, you've got to look at the wider picture. And I think the, the issue of sustainable uh, decentralised service delivery will be challenged more and more as the, the situation evolves because of um, issues around rights, governance and accountability. And, and I think those are all things that are discussed and raised and people are trying to um, affect change um, to bring, that, to bring a, a positive outcome there. But it, <clears throat> the issue of sustainability, I think, is, is, is the key um, with a lot of this. And you, and you talk about the, uh, uh, the, the funding. The funding in, in itself is, is um, I think, less of a problem. Uh, the, the greater problem is, is whether the government will stick uh, to the policy, and I think that, that that is there. So what we've done with the government is bring about a, a study around sustainability so that in 10, 20 years' time, as I said, it, it's, it's a long-term project, the, the outcome of, uh, of this is sustainable for the um, people of Ethiopia and the government of Ethiopia, uh, wherever that, that is. So looking at issues around taxation, looking at uh, issues around prioritisation in, in, in development over the next few years um, and, and so on. Corruption um, I've had the privilege of working in some of the most corrupt countries and, and looking at some of these issues there um, bring about certain challenges um, but there is also an opportunity that you can use decentralised uh, service delivery to um, look at public financial management, look at the, the, the way that um, public financial management can be ring-fenced. Um, and I think what we've seen in, in, in Ethiopia is it, it can be, and how we can replicate that model elsewhere um, is going to be challenging. Um, I wouldn't do it in 80% of the countries I've worked in. Um, I would look at a completely different model, but each country has, has its own way of working. And Corruption is an obstacle to decentralized uh, uh, service delivery. Great, thank you. So, more questions. Who else? There were more hands up before. Yeah? Yes, the lady in the very back? She's one of the opposition Okay. Thank you. My first question is about your excellent statistical study on Ethiopia, please. And I want to know about the spatial variation of Wereda expenditures per capita. I'm sorry, can you speak up a bit? We're having trouble hearing you. You want to know about spatial expenditure? Spatial variations. Spatial variation expenditure. Wereda expenditures per capita. I would like to know if you can uh, aggregate your data on a regional basis in order to determine which region has the biggest bang for the buck. Specifically, I would like to know if Region 1 is doing better per capita than other regions in determining the effect and the outcome per dollar. <coughs> Would Good. you be able to tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> that is my first question. 
My second question is for the gentleman from DFID. I would like to know, please, why you are using the term emerging regions. Emerging from what? <laughs> and in, I note that the emerging regions, Somalia, Fiji, Benishangukumus, and Gambela are all uh, either oil or gas producing regions as opposed to other regions that are agricultural based. What is the criteria for being an emerging region? Thank you. Okay, thank you. I think the gentleman, yes, the gentleman next to her had a question. Uh, <coughs> my question is uh, about, I don't remember his name, this man. Uh, he told us that uh, Ethiopia has been improving and improved for the last 20 years. Uh, but on the other hand, <coughs> I read uh, a report written by the Oxford University which puts Ethiopia second last to second second last poorest country in the world only Niger being behind Ethiopia we know Ethiopia I'm an Ethiopian Ethiopia has been poor all the time but According to these statistics, which Oxford University shows, it is going from worse to worst. But what you say, including also you mentioned uh, peasant talking, uh, met you around Lalbala. I think. Maybe your study depends on the person whom you talked or it's a reflection of the economy of Ethiopia. According to the, the, the Oxford University, 93% are going low, only 5% going high. You can read that is 2011, which uh, Oxford University produced. But I don't know, maybe the different angle the people are looking. Whom can we believe then? You told us it has been improving for the last 20 years. Thank you. Great, okay. And maybe one more down here, the gentleman in the front. Okay, and then I'll come to you next round. Next round. Thank, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, in the presentation, you said that all um, financial transfers are made public are they for, for even in local languages for people to, for the, uh, people to see and all that. I'd like to find out that in, tying that in with the leadership at the uh, Warida level, how are the leaders at that level appointed? And I ask this because if, if the local people, let's say, if vote for them to be there, there's an extent to which they can voice out 
as far as that financial, um, let's say, accountability is concerned. But if they are appointed at the central government or, or at the regional level, as you, yeah, you, you told us, then they may, they may not even listen to the local people. So the exposing accountability of the finances, it will not, will just be, um, I am just just addressing. It wouldn't be make much difference in in in, in the uh, warida um, level. I don't know if I mentioned the word very well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Tazu, would you like to start? Yeah. And the first question on regional variations. Uh, yeah. If you, if you look at most of the data in Ethiopia, you'll see regions are converging, with the exception of Somalia and Afar in, in outcomes in health, education. In, in all these areas. And, uh, and some of the problems in Somali are probably due to the pastoral nature of the population because the services are stationary, the population is not. So that's something we look at, that divergence. But as we are finding out over time, the pastoral population are getting less and less pastoral. Nowadays, they move, keep the older people, the women, and younger children at, in a fixed location. Over time, they're coming back. So that'll be one way to move forward. But generally, the gap in Ethiopia now is actually among lagging waradas, which are all over the country, not just in the, in the less developed regions. For example, just give you one example. The net enrollment rate of the bottom 10% of the Waradas is about 15%. Right? This is Waradas average for the bottom 10 And these Waradas are in every region of the country compared to the mean national median, which is similar to the national mean we pointed out earlier. So there is a geographic divergence, but it's no longer at the regional level. It's at the Warada level, right? So we have to look at it. The question on... Um, Financial transparency and governance issues. Yeah. Ethiopia uh, is modeling itself after China as a development state. Local officials have to manage upwards, which is a question you're making. Then how does that make them responsive to the local population, right? That's what a question was? Okay. They manage upwards, but because the government is trying to stake its legitimacy on getting results... Local officials' performance in getting the results is, is a big factor in whether they move upward or move out or move downward. So there is a results-based accountability, but, you know, but even if they're doing upward management. So there are a lot of strict targets given. Lots of things have to be delivered. And, and also, a few things have been happening in more recent periods, which... Uh, which uh, means that maybe after the in two three years time they will have more structured response mechanism in every district of the country now every one of them. So those structured responsive mechanisms are useful because social accountability allows people who are less have less voice to be able to voice because they're sitting in a structured system. I think I, I think I think most of the questions are Peter on this round. If I recall, <laughs> um, I would agree with you. The term "emerging." Uh, I was just being consistent with all the other documents, but then there are four regions in their own right. And the, 
I think the issue there is that those four regions, more than any other regions, have uh, been under-resourced in terms of service delivery. And it's only recently that uh, some of the resources are uh, now being put in place. Um, In terms of poverty and and Ethiopia, Ethiopia, as as you quite rightly said, is uh, um, one of the poorest countries in the world. And it will remain one of the poorest countries in the world for a long, long time. As I said, this is... (coughs) the beginning of a, a long-term project that, uh, um, that, that Ethiopia is going through um, and its success will depend on how long it can uh, remain stable and invest in, in service delivery um, at regional level. Ethiopia probably will meet most of the NDGs, um, but so will many other countries. Uh, but the and, and, and which is an indicator that the tide is perhaps changing. If, if you take the central highlands of Ethiopia up to 2004, 2005, decade on decade, destitution actually increased um, since 2005, with service delivery becoming more and more prominent, access being uh, increased uh, immeasurably. Um, things are beginning to to turn around. But it will take a long, long time before Ethiopia can come out of poverty. And there will always be pockets of extreme poverty in in the country for decades to come. Um, I actually want to go back to a question in the previous round because I forgot to to mention um, your questions about the fact that there is, there is a difference in talking about participation in terms of that being provider being in place. You mentioned um, trainings taking place and those not being necessarily um, the same as participation working in, in, in practice. I would agree, basically, and that's what I meant earlier in my comments. I think there is a genuine open questions that need to be addressed about the extent to which uh, social accountability interventions are effective. Um, my take on it is that there is a limit to which that question can be an empirical one that can be answered by data and research. Some of it I think needs to be experimented with, particularly for this work at the local level when you try to, to actually put in practice the, you know, the social accountability measures alongside um, um, other, other forms, you know, other, other tools to try to improve outcomes and see how in connections they work. Uh, but I would agree with you that there is a problem in if we continue to Talk about social accountability as something that works in principles and need to be in, and, and, and is just done in terms of activities. Um, but I do think that there is potential in this work at the, at the at the local level to get a better handle of it. And, and I do wonder whether on these dis- discussions about the actual differences, the variations between region, including on some of the different political settlements and political structures that exist within those regions, there is scope to get a better sense of the differences between regions in relation to where social accountability works better than another. Great, thank you. Let me interject a couple of quick observations because I'm a co-author on this study as well. Um, I like the, the lady's question very much at the beginning of this round about which region gets the more bang for its buck. Um, we can answer that question. Unfortunately, I can't answer it right now because I can't remember exactly, and I don't want to lead you astray, or I think I can remember, but I may be wrong. But we can find out immediately following this event because it's in the annex of the book where you can see regional decompositions of investment funds and also um, regional... Results, too. 
Yeah, and results, exactly. And so regional um, dummies that measure the, 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 the marginal, the incremental effect of the marginal dollar, let's say the marginal beer, on education results, health results, and, and agriculture results. And you can see that the answer will be two or three regions for education get more bang for the buck, and perhaps a different two or three regions get more bang for the buck in health. And that in itself is interesting. And, and so that gives us sort of more, um, more grist for the mill for, for further investigation. If I can comment on something that's come up in, in several questions about corruption, the decentralization is a field that I've been working in for a long time, as some of you know. And, and I'm happy to tell you that there are exactly three things that happen with respect to corruption when a country decentralizes. One is that the local governments and the regional governments are less, comparatively less corrupt than the central government was before, and so corruption gets better. The second possibility is that the regional and local government are more or less as corrupt as the central government was before, and you don't get much change. And the third option is that it gets worse. And all of these things happen across the world. I very much agree with Marta that there isn't a single linear response or a single linear prediction about what will happen when you decentralize vis-a-vis corruption. It could get better, it could get worse, or you could get broadly no change. The interesting, and so these reflexive policy recommendations about decentralizing because the following will happen are silly, and it's good that we're getting away from them. The interesting analytical question is why in some countries, or even within countries in some regions and some waredas, you have far more, um, far more honest, far, far greater probity of government than you had under centralization when a country decentralizes. And in other regions and where it is within the same country and within the same decentralization program, it gets worse. And that's the kind of space where I think there are going to be a thousand studies launched in, in the coming couple of decades. And some of you LSE students could be amongst those who do that work. Um, next round, there's a question here. Yes, gentleman here in the striped sweater. Maybe. Um, thank you. Um, my question is actually a question to the sustainability of the model again and to what you just said. Um, because I was asking myself if the 50% are funded by the World Bank or by other donors, if the 50% are gone, um, why would the government stick to that, to this decentralization? Because decentralization means usually that someone gives up power, like the local governments gain power and the national governments gives up power, and usually no one likes to lose power. So how can you make sure that they, um, yeah, that they don't try to get back the power and reverse the decentralization? <laughs> okay, thank you. Who else? I saw hands. Is there a hand up over here? Yes. The lady down here in, in the... There we go. I think uh, as a, a witness and a participant into a part, a, a part of a humanitarian mission on a, a, what is defined as non-governmental uh, structures, say the organization, although actually they might be much more governmental towards the risk taken, towards the fact of uh, investigating locally how the funds would be actually exploited or not in a, a structural adjustment towards a familial structure or within a, the education program about the quality of uh, psychological approach of uh, education of children, 
uh, within a, a wish of integrity into the principles and how from here on the mainstream national media how do we uh, perceive this for example on Al Jazeera and things like that is something that is a very um, intriguing because uh, we can notice that even in uh, media journalism there's a lot of curbing or dissimulation within what would be uh, local um, skills provided to people who have a workforce hardship that is much harder than other jobs and even here we have uh, people who are my friends who are from Africa they have very hard jobs but they don't have a psychological support that is the same than people who can access a school like here and um, that I think uh, it's a shame Okay, thank you Oh, yes, yes, okay Sorry, over here on the side and then we'll get in the gentleman as well and then that'll be, I think, the end The lady on on the purple, blue, on the blue Yes, right on the edge Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion Um, Just one comment and then a question I think looking at different livelihood groups I don't know if your report actually breaks rather than by ethnicity, but looking at specific livelihood groups. I mean, is the uh, information disaggregated within Waradas between different kinds of livelihood groups? Because in all over Ethiopia, you have agro-pastoralists, pastoralists, horticulturalists, farmers, urban etc. So I'm just wondering, A, if it's disaggregated uh, like that. Um, and so that's my main question, yeah. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. And over here on my left, please. Yes. Thank you for finally coming to me. Um, <laughs> You're most welcome. Um, I just um, I wanted to say that uh, really for everyone on the panel, that it's really important to exercise at least some level of due diligence if we are to interfere in the life of people. Uh, in the life of people whose social structure, political structure, we don't fully understand. Uh, Kaiser spoke about social accountability. He doesn't properly explain what he meant by social accountability, but it seems to me what he calls social accountability is actually a technology of control not social accountability. I am from Ethiopia and I lived all my life there. Now I teach here. Um, and the, the image that is being depicted here is really very difficult to understand for anyone. I'm not saying that there are no changes in Ethiopia. There are changes, definitely. But I would really be interested to actually understand how much of that data comes from um, the government. And if the government is clearly authoritarian, uh, which I hope most of you would agree, uh, what is the legitimacy of using this data insofar as this is the government that justifies its own legitimacy as a government on lifting people out of poverty? Because it has to deliver results, as you said, I agree with you, and insofar as its own legitimacy ultimately rests on this fact, how do we trust this debt? So I would really be interested to hear how much, in terms of percentage, does this data come, how much of this data comes from the government, 
Um, and why is it that you can't gather your own data rather than relying on, on, on the government's data? Thank you. Okay. Do you want to start? I'm not sure. The last question, yeah, I got this at the University of Addis Ababa when you made a presentation too about the, you're taking the government data to get results which look make the government. Yes, I remember I mentioned at the beginning we triangulated the government data findings with data from DHS, which is generated independently by U.S.-based organization, and the same model is used in every country to collect the data and, and, and test the data. So we have tested the results we found here with the data, and in fact, one slide I showed was actually just DHS results. So I'll, I'll leave the data question rest. As far as the political economy question is for you Ethiopians to work out among yourselves, I'm just going by what the data is telling me, and I'm trying to, and, and I've told the researcher at the university, others who are skeptical of some of the findings, take the database and do your own analysis, right? If you so, are taking an information, you need to justify it intellectually. You can't tell, you can't write a book and then say, that is for you. Sorry. <laughs> you don't want any education or health service in Ethiopia? That's fine, that's the other interview. Always saying, do, do this in that way. And so let me answer the other questions because I think I don't want to get into political economy questions and I'll spend all my time on those issues, right? Now, there's a question on livelihoods and how that interprets results. Yeah, one of the issues of what you have with livelihood patterns is that, that we are actually trying to generate the data now in the next round, trying to find and we are having independent surveys done to look at livelihood patterns and livelihood issues, right? And, uh, and how that affects some of the results. It is very clear from the anecdotal evidence that if you're a pastoral population, if you go to the pastoral areas of Ethiopia, you'll have very high school enrollment rate in the beginning of the year. Then the grazing season starts. Most of the boys drop out. They go off grazing. Again, at the end of the year, you have a very high enrollment rate, right? So if you do not look at it in a seasonal basis, your data, snapshot data, beginning of the year, end of the year, will not give you the right results. So that's why you have to look at these questions by talking to households and not using administrative data. That's why we're trying to generate some of that data. Uh, there was a question also on... Uh, the question that you had, most of the, in the points you make are great. And I said in the beginning, development is about choice, right? And if, you, and if you look at people, you know, Ethiopia is still a very poor country, as I know. The results are there. It's still a very poor country, and it's starting from a very low base. But if you look at the reduction of poverty in Ethiopia, the three factors that reduce poverty in Ethiopia in the last decade or so show are, first of all, what, in a broad-based agricultural growth, which is, you know, small-scale agri agricultural growth, which is what Peter was talking about in his anecdote, right, that results are confirmed in the, in the uh, rounds of, we looked at the independent service for that. The second factor has been, you know, if you look at Ethiopia, if, if you look at the history of the last 40 years of Ethiopia, and the most characteristic factors in Ethiopia has been the story of famines, recurrent famines, and mass starvations, right? The frequency of that, as a national scale, has, has, 
has gone down and, and it is, there's still localized problems. You're not saying it's, it's rosy, right? But one of the reasons for that has been a massive effort by the government and by Ethiopia's development partners to fund uh, food security safety nets which react in advance of a crisis. So if you looked at the last Horn of Africa crisis, Ethiopia, which would have the highest impact on normal drought in the last had the lowest impact because of these organized programs. It is, it is not just the government alone, it's the Ethiopian communities, all of them working together to rehabilitate the mountainsides, to reforest the hills, which is helping improve productivity and reducing the risk in that area. And the third factor has been the improvement in service deliveries. These are the three things driving poverty reduction in Ethiopia. It's still a long way to go. Okay. I'm not a nutritionist, but I'm sure my nutrition colleagues would agree with you. And there's a micronutrient program UNICEF is doing right now, is looking at some of those issues. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the question where the federal system will really sustain without donors, this federal system was built up without donors telling them to do it. I mean, it is in the constitution of Ethiopia, and it's a constitutional obligation of the federal government to provide funds to the regions and worthers. And in fact, there's the House of Federation, which is a separate house, which actively monitors it, right? And so I think, I think that yep. takes care of all the questions, yeah. We also had questions on sustainability and livelihoods. Marta and Peter, I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I mean, on the sustainability of the model more, so back to decentralization. Um, I mean... Jean-Paul is the expert here, and you already mentioned how you know, there are a million different versions of it. But one of the, the problems, what you said about the fact that what, 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 um, uh, what qualifies decentralization is a transfer of power and is sustainability over time is precisely one of the variables that you can't assume to be there across the, across the models. And there is plenty of examples of decentralization without meaningful transfer of power, some of which I think have, in some cases, has been to some extent donor-driven or donor-inspired, but for whatever it was coming from, um, the, the idea that there is, there, is a, there is a model for transferring power that is likely to be sustainable is, is very much not what happens and is what determines the three different outcomes. That is one of the variables that determines the three different outcomes that, that Jean-Paul mentioned. And in fact, it's very, it's very common that that transfer of power doesn't happen or doesn't happen as planned um, and it does not trickles down to the local level. <laughs> Just on, on sustainability and, and your point about data, and, and you, you make a valid point, but I think this study, which is right at the beginning of a long-term uh, evolution of, of uh, service delivery, um, is saying that the, the model, having triangulated data, the model of decentralized service delivery seems to be working. It's not saying it has worked, it's finished, it's done its job. It's right at the beginning that it, there are positive indicators of it working. Accountability has a long, long, long way to go, uh, and social accountability uh, especially. And until that emerges, we, the model itself won't um, be proven to have worked and, and succeed. There's a lot, there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. The quality of services... The, the cultural relationship between the communities and the services and so on. 
those, are, those won't happen overnight, and, and they need a lot more time um, to, to um, take effect. Just on a wider thing, on, on the issue of um, uh, the amount of external and um, internal resources, there's something called the additionality test, which every six months we, uh, is looked at. And that's to ensure that the Ethiopian government contribution year on year continues to increase and is ahead of um, the external resources that we bring to bear. And the whole point of that is to ensure that over the next 5, 10, 15 years that the Ethiopia's own resources um, dominate, uh, start to <coughs> dominate and in the end overtake um, the substantial amount of resources required for service delivery in Ethiopia. Great. Thank you very much for that. I'm afraid we've gone just over time, so it remains for me to thank Kaiser Khan, Marta Foresti, and Peter Hawkins <coughs> for a very interesting, lively session, and thanks to all of you for sticking it through to the end.